seated. All right. Good song and reminder that, you know, sometimes as believers, we can be ashamed of that cross and the fact that it was a debasing thing for Christ to go on that cross. But we need to remember that Paul said he would preach Christ crucified. Um, it's part of the message. It's part of the good news. And so we can be thankful for that. So uh, our second two readings from the lectionary are first from Romans 6, starting at verse 1. It's and fourth message of the series that we've been going through, the book of Jonah. And I titled the series here, Jonah and the Great Commission. Uh, we want to be appreciative of God's grace towards others. This is going to be evident in our lesson as we see how Jonah reacted. This morning, uh, many of you were in D6, and uh, it was a great lesson, one, one that's a reminder we always have to keep remembering. Uh, it was from Nehemiah chapter 8, where the people were um, uh, read the book of the law, and then they were sent into small groups to discuss the book of the law and what they had heard being read, and then they went to their family uh, campsites, Jesus, or God said, go camping, more or less, the, the festival of booths, and they set up booths to sit outside, and part of that was to remind them of their time in, in uh, the Exodus, the story of the Exodus, the time in the wilderness, and so it was a great lesson to remind us of why we're doing this whole D6 program and why our church, Oasis Church, has decided that the, the goal that we have together commonly, the most important thing we want to do is to obey Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which tells us that we're to teach these things to our children and we're supposed to talk about them all the time. So I encourage the class, and I'll encourage you as well, if you weren't in D6, if you were in D6, I'm still going to encourage you to talk to someone else about what you learned today in D6. But let's add to that what we're going to learn here from the book of Jonah, and let's think about opportunities we may have during the week to discuss with others and say, you know, I think the Lord is challenging me in this way, and this is what I've learned this week through his word. And so I challenge you to do that. So as we get into this last message from the book of Jonah, we went through all four chapters. It's a pretty short book, um, and we took a chapter a week, and now we're in week four. Uh, we're going to use an acronym that... Uh, most of us are familiar with, which is GPS, uh, which, uh, and usually when we're using the term GPS means global positioning satellites, but we're going to have three GPSs that we're going to focus on this morning, and, and if you're a note taker, this is the only time this slide's going to come up, so just you might want to write them down now. So the first GPS is God's promise of salvation. The second is God's plan of salvation. And the third is God's provision of salvation. So let's discuss Jonah chapter 4. Euangelion is a Greek word. You may not be familiar with that Greek word, but you're familiar with our transliteration of it. But it means news that makes one happy or information that causes joy or words that bring smiles, or a message that causes the heart to be sweet. Euangelion. The word comes from days uh, past where battlefield messengers would come 
with a battle report. Some of you know the story of why they, people run a marathon today, and it's exactly 26.2 miles. There's a story behind that. I'm not getting into that right now. But messengers would come from the battlefield with a report, and many reports from the battlefield were bad news, right? They broke through our ranks. Many men have fallen. Things are going badly. But then sometimes the messenger would run and shout, Euangelion! Good news! The battle is won. We are victorious. And the word euangelion, which in English is good news, the root word for evangelize and evangelist and evangelism and evangelical, the word euangelion is what the writers of the New Testament used to describe the telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Euangelion, good news. And as most of you know, I love the good news. I love that God has allowed me to preach it. I love that I get to study it. I love the word of God because it is life to my very soul. And it is euangelion, good news. But many times we only think that the good news is found in the gospels or in the New Testament. But the good news is found throughout the Bible because every part of scripture points to Christ. Every part of Scripture gives us a glimpse of the good news. Without the Old Testament to point us to Christ, we would be far less enriched in our understanding of the deepness and broadness and length of God's saving grace. Euangelion. The good news is found throughout Scripture because all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. The Word of God has been called a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is God's precious and holy word to us. It shows us how to find him, how to please him, how to worship him. But if you needed to sum up the entire Bible in one word, I think it would be salvation. The Bible guides us in finding salvation and in keeping ourselves right with God, and every part of it points to Christ. Most of us use GPS at some point, probably every week. We mostly all have it. Phones are coming, you know, I don't think any phone doesn't come with a GPS anymore. Um, I could be wrong on that. But the global positioning system guides us to where we need to go, but it isn't flawless. Who can testify that the GPS is not flawless, okay? <laughs> I put in an address once when we were in South Dakota. I was trying to get to some folks' house that we were going to visit, and, and it told me to drive right across the field. And I would have gotten there eventually, but probably not in the car. I would have been stuck and on foot. But we use GPS, and we trust it, even though it's not perfectly reliable. But do we use the Bible, which is completely reliable, as our guide? The Bible is full of the good news, but is also full of warnings and directions. Some GPS systems will automatically reroute you. They're getting better at this all the time, right? If they know there's road construction or traffic or even weather, some of the systems now will right, route you around it. And the Bible, if we study it carefully, will guide us to be able to avoid disaster. It will guide us to the right path. And we need to know it so that when those times of difficulty come, we're ready to follow God's way, not our own. This morning, I'm going to use that acronym GPS, but there's another meaning for it. 
make no mistake, the Word of God is holy and good. It is God's message to us. I would never want to cheapen it by making it a mere tool like GPS, but I believe the acronym can help us to better understand that all of Scripture points us towards salvation through Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to use that acronym GPS. We're going to talk about the, how the entire Bible points us to Christ, how the good news is ours to keep, but it's our responsibility to share. We will look at the last chapter of Jonah, and once we see what Jonah's story has to do with the Great Commission, we're going to also see how the entire Bible uh, points us to Christ. So God's promise of salvation starts in Genesis. God tells the serpent that Jesus is coming. God's plan of salvation continues through the Old Testament. People constantly fail to live up to God's standards, so he gives them the sacrifices and the laws. And these also point to Christ who would fulfill the law. And God's provision of salvation comes in the very person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ is God's provision for our salvation. So let's look at chapter 4 of Jonah and let's see how this story also points to Jesus and how we can apply it in our service to him. So Jonah chapter 4 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Just to... I probably should have added in the last verse of chapter 3 where it said that they repented, the people of Nineveh. The fact that they repented now we see displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, would see, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it, that it may be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? See, that's a second question like that. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Oh, what a drama queen, huh? And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Today's message has something of importance to everyone who listens. For the sinner who has not yet repented, Evangelion, good news. God relents when people repent. For the Christian seeking to please God, Evangelion, good news. The good news is entrusted to you to share with others. And finally, for the backslidden Christian, Evangelion, good news. God graciously gives you many opportunities to return to him. So let's go back for a moment to verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That's quite a text. 
It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What was Jonah's anger about? You remember from last sermon, God had relented from descending, descending disaster to Nineveh because of their repentance. However, Jonah felt they deserved punishment and judgment. And he was angry that God did not ex execute that judgment that Jonah felt was deserved. In all of this, Jonah has been shown the grace of God. God saved Jonah, gave him a second opportunity to serve him by sending the fish. But Jonah doesn't seem to think that God's grace should extend to Nineveh. He's okay with receiving God's grace himself, but he doesn't like it when Nineveh receives grace. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is that not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In fact, it's beyond Jonah just disagreeing with God. A close study of the original language here reveals that Jonah actually saw this as an evil thing. He's beyond disagreeing. He's beyond even just being offended. He's convinced that God has done an evil thing. You see, Jonah was waiting to see something happen to Nineveh. He was standing by, waiting for Nineveh to fall for his own enjoyment and pleasure. It's a little like lighting the fuse on fireworks. You ever lit fireworks? It always says, light fuse and what? Get away. Light fuse and get away. Well, anyone who has set up fireworks very much has had, a, at some point, you've had a dud, right? You light the fuse, you run away, you look back, eagerly waiting for the fireworks to go off. The fuse burns, and all of a sudden the fuse is finished burning, and the fireworks haven't gone off. You've a dud. Jonah gave his message, backed away, and awaited the show, yet nothing happened. It was as though the repentance of Nineveh poured water on the fuse of God's wrath against them. And Jonah was denied his entertainment. Do we do that? Do we sit back, mad at someone, waiting for God to destroy them, and get mad when they don't get destroyed? We disagree with them, or we feel that God is unfair in giving grace to someone who we were hoping would be brought low by his punishments or wrath. Do we look around at others and think, they don't deserve his grace? What a thing to be mad about. Jonah, who had been the recipient of God's grace in a powerful way, is mad that God acted within his character. The character of God is described this way many times. A, graceful God, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here Jonah is quoted saying something that would have been a common uh, saying among his people as a pledge of allegiance would have been among ours. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is where he gets this from. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and, mer and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, for forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth, third and fourth generation, here was God declaring his character to Moses. Yet Jonah is mad about the fact that God is acting within his very character. Here we are in Exodus, and we see euangelion. Good news. God is gracious and merciful. That's good news. And God's plan for salvation 
was already being revealed throughout the Old Testament. The Exodus passage here contains hope and warning for all of us. God relents from disaster for those who repent of sin, but the effects of the sin are not just eliminated altogether, but rather are felt for generations after. Any questions about this, check out the story of David and Bathsheba and see this, that though God forgave David when he became repentant, the family suffered for generations because of David's sin. This is where the Bible warns us. Just as GPS can warn us of trouble on the road ahead, God gives us clear warnings of what can happen when we stray from his path. So even though Jonah had finally obeyed God, he was not submitted to God. One person put it this way, this verse is an extremely disturbing one. It indicates that while Jonah had become obedient, he still lacked a spirit of submission. Verse 3, it says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because it's obvious to everyone what's happening here. He's pouting. If he can't have the satisfaction of seeing someone he doesn't like fail or worse be destroyed, then he's going to throw a pout. Of course, this was before Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, but Jonah the prophet should have known that the best thing for us to, to desire is for God's will to be done. Next, we see a strong rebuke by God in the form of a question. Oh, don't we hate being questioned when we know we're wrong? Our nature resists that. We don't want to be questioned. We want to be the questioner. Heaven forbid that we get to the point of Jonah where we demand God take action and are angered when he doesn't do things the way we wanted them done. Heaven forbid we, like Jonah, have a greater desire to see punishment than grace. The question that the Lord gave him, do you do well to be angry? What a stinging rebuke. God is forcing Jonah to answer a question, and yet we see here Jonah has no answer. He's painting himself into a corner. And God is giving him an opportunity to confess and be right before him, yet Jonah continues to resist what arrogance can come when we feel we would do better than someone else. When we feel we could do better than someone in leadership over us. When we feel we have better answers than our teachers. And heaven forbid we would get to the point where we believe we know better than God himself. In verses 5 and 6 then we see what he did next. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now we see Jonah is still waiting for the dud firework to go off. He makes himself a little spot to sit. The fuse went out, but he's going to wait anyway, and a frustrating wait it ends up being for Jonah. When we light a firework that doesn't go off, we wait a little while in case there's still a spark, the thing could still go off. But after a few minutes, we're sure it won't go off, we pick it up, we throw it out, we go on with our lives. Jonah wasn't about to give up. He was going to stubbornly wait for the destruction of Nineveh, even after he had declared his anger at the Lord for relenting. But here again, we see the grace of God. He causes a plant to grow to shade Jonah. God has shown Jonah again and again his sovereignty over nature and events. 
Jonah has now received so much of God's grace, it's hard to believe that he has not softened his heart yet. And sometimes we do the same thing. We've received such grace from God, yet we do not extend grace to others. We're happy to receive the things of God, but less anxious to share them with others. We sit on the truth that saved us while all around us are people who are also in great need of God's grace. There's an interesting thing about the root word translated discomfort there in verse 6. The lemma or root for discomfort is the same Hebrew word used in Jonah 3.10 where it says God relented of the disaster and chapter 4 verse 2 relenting from disaster. It's the same root word and also the same root word that Jonah 4.1 says it displeased Jonah exceedingly. So it's no mistake that these same root words are being used in these verses. It's harder for us to get this because we're reading it in English. But in English, sometimes someone will take a root word and they'll use it again and again to kind of drive home a point, but they'll use it in different ways. This is what's happening here in the original Hebrew language. The writer is clearly trying to make a point, which anyone who would have been reading it in the English or in the original language would not have failed to miss. Jonah's not even able to see the irony of his anger about God relenting from punishing Nineveh in light of the grace God had given Jonah. He doesn't even see it. In verses 7 and 8, when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. As I studied this, I could not help comparing Jonah to Job. Jonah lost a plant and wants to die. Job lost his children, servants, crops, livestock, and his health. His wife said, curse God and die. But instead, Job worshiped God in his distress and said, he gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jonah is clearly no Job. How minor was Jonah's misfortune in losing the plant compared to the calamity that Job went through? Would you rather be like Job, able to worship God in your distress, or like Jonah, frustrated about losing some comfort and being angered at the well-being of others? What about this hot wind sent Jonah's way? I found this interesting description of the weather in Assyria. Quote, Losing precious shade in this harsh environment was one matter for Jonah. Experiencing this horrible wind was yet another. Most identify this wind as the Sirocco, S-I-R-O-C-C-O. When this wind is experienced in the Near East, the temperature rises dramatically and the humidity drops quickly. It is a constant and extremely hot wind that contains fine particles of dust. It contains constant hot air so full of positive ions that it affects the levels of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters, causing exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality, and occasionally bizarre behavior. The Septuagint translated succinctly as a scorcher. In fact, during this type of weather... 
Islamic law allows for some leniency in sentencing criminals because it is well known that people can be driven temporarily out of their mind in these conditions. So they even relax the standards of the law because if someone's in this type of situation, this weather, it can actually drive you a little crazy. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Can you imagine answering God like that? Wow. So again, Jonah's being questioned by God. Clearly, the very response to God's question is implied in the asking, but Jonah sets his shoulders and arrogantly replies to the question, he has a right to be angry. And in this little hearing... Jonah has just clinched the case against him as he continues to implicate himself. Verses 10 and 11, Then the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not, should not I, sorry, <laughs> it's easy for me to say. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That's a massive city in those days. Massive. This book concludes with a rhetorical question from God. An answer from Jonah is not given, and I suspect he was silenced by God's response. God, who created all things for his good pleasure, has all power over his creation. He controls a fish that he sent to rescue Jonah. He controls the plant. He controls the wind. He controls the worm that he sent to take the plant out. He controls the sun. He has every right to destroy what he sees fit and to spare what he sees fit. But further than that, God is pointing out that not everything in his creation has equal value. Much more valuable to God than a plant are people. There's an environmentalist message in there somewhere, but I'm going to leave it alone. Even cattle are more important than a plant. So the book ends in a question to which no answer is given. But the one who understands the grace and mercy of God does understand. It's clear to the one with open eyes and an open heart that the whole point here is euangelion. Good news. God's grace is greater than we can possibly fathom towards those who seek his will and desire to do right and repent when they fail. Now, a person could say Assyria was a pagan nation. They were a horrible people. We talked about that the first week of this series. They did deserve God's wrath, and that's true. Don't get the idea that in any of this, God would not have been justified in utterly destroying them because he would have been entirely justified in doing so. But when we repent, God relents. I often pray for those that I know, and you should pray for all those that you know who are not right with God. Lord, may they repent that you may relent. The soul in the most danger in this book, I believe, is Jonah. He knows the truth, but he's convinced that being a Hebrew puts him in a different class altogether in deserving God's grace. But in fact, God points out that the people of Nineveh didn't know any better. Certainly, they have a concept of right and wrong, but they didn't have the preferential treatment God gave to Israel by choosing them to receive his law, the guidelines for godliness. Whenever people who know the truth, who know the right things to do and the wrong things to avoid and choose the wrong anyway, they're in a dangerous place. 
Someone commented, to know Yahweh and not obey him would seem to deserve a greater punishment and deeper repentance. So what does that mean to us as a church? How does it relate to the Great Commission? How can we apply what we learned this morning to our life in Christian witness? One writer said this, quote, And what about the hard inner core of ego that has never been given over to God's control? Was our conversion a radical transformation from self-centered willfulness or an effort to recruit God to help us accomplish our goals? Have the harrowing experiences of life broken our inner core of proud individualism or are we essentially the same people we always were? After the crisis are past, are we any more flexible and willing to discern and do God's will? Are there people we resist loving or caring for because of their contradiction of our values, beliefs, or lifestyle? Who are our personal Ninevites? If the Lord said, Arise, go, what would be most difficult to obey? Do we ever get so committed to our predictions of what some people or groups deserve that we take on the responsibility, actively or in thought, to program their punishment? Do we know anyone in a power struggle like Jonas? Are there vestiges of that struggle in us? For what do we need God's pity? Who in our lives needs God's pity through us. End quote. Earlier I stated that this message has an application for anyone who listens. First, for the person who has not put faith in Christ, you and Galleon, good news. God saved the Ninevites who repented. And he still saves and forgives those who repent today when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. The entire Bible points to Jesus, and the book of Jonah is no exception. Next, for the Christian, euangelion, good news. You can be the one to declare the good news, just as our Lord commanded in the Great Commission. However, there's a warning here. Don't underestimate the grace of God, and don't begrudge someone else his grace. It is for all who accept it. Can a person ever rightly resent the grace of God shown to another? G.V. Smith said, God will and does act in justice against sin, but his great love for every person in the world causes him to wait patiently, to give graciously, to forgive mercifully, and to accept compassionately even the most unworthy people in the world. To experience the grace of God and not be willing to tell others of his compassion is a tragedy all must avoid. Messengers of God can neither limit the grace of God nor control its distribution, but they can prevent God's grace from having an effect on their own lives. And finally, for the backslidden Christian, Euangelion, good news. God's grace is greater than you can comprehend. Do you want to get right with him again? Do you want to serve him well? Do you want to be able to lift up holy hands to worship him? Do you want to worship in spirit and in truth? It is never too late. 
You can still turn your back on sin and turn toward God. Perhaps there is something holding you back. Perhaps you feel shame at your sin. Perhaps you're mad that God is speaking into your life about sin. But God can restore. He can lift you up out of the pit. He's waiting for you to decide. Nineveh was confronted with their sin and they repented and God gave grace. Jonah ran from God and God still graciously gave him an opportunity to serve again. Jonah sinned again in being angry with God, yet God comforted him with the plant. God gives many chances for changes. He does the changing for us if we humbly seek his face and have a desire to be right with him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the UN Galleon, the good news. Lord, I pray that uh, as we consider Jonah's circumstance and our own, any ugly characteristics of Jonah we see that may be our own characteristics, will you expose them to us, Lord, that we may repent and turn back towards you? If we have any lack of concern towards any Ninevites in our lives, Lord, would you convict us of that sin and convince us of the truth of the good news and give us the empowerment of your Holy Spirit and the confidence to know that your word is true and that it will not return void and would you remove the barriers that come between us and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the world around us. Lord, will you convict us of those sins that we are committing and have committed, either in our mind or even in our actions, regarding the unsaved? Lord, will you cleanse us of the unrighteousness that's in us when we think of ourselves as better than others because you've given your grace to us and they're still lost? Lord, may we be reminded that your grace saved us and it is quite capable of saving others. May we have an extra boldness, Lord. Even as those believers in Acts, when faced with the persecution and the warnings of the society around them not to teach this gospel, they went to you and they prayed and they said, Lord, would you grant us boldness? May Oasis Church, Lord, be granted a new measure of boldness to share your word with the world around us. May every individual who calls themselves a believer who's hearing this message this morning take seriously your call to us, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we be attentive and obedient to your commission for each of us. May we take it very seriously, Lord. But we can't do it without you, Lord. We ask for your empowerment. We ask for your forgiveness for where we've failed. We ask you to encourage our spirits to be confident in your word. And do it first, Lord, in me. In Jesus' name, amen.